0: I'm Dr. Omar Khan.
1: I'm Dr. Shannon Gowland. I'm Dr. Tiffany Dursey. And welcome to Vet Sessions. Hello, everyone. My name is Tiffany Dursey, and I will be your host today on Vet Sessions. Today, I'm really excited to speak with Dr. Lisa Cox, and she's the curator of the Barker Museum at the Ontario Veterinary College. Uh, I've been to the Barker Museum actually in the past, and I've always been very fascinated by the old photos at OVC. The history of OVC is actually quite a long one, um, certainly by Canadian standards. Uh, Lisa, before we get started, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, what your background is, and like how did you get involved as the historian at OVC? Well, thank you for having me. It's
0: lovely to be here. Um, I started working at the OVC in 2010. Uh, I did my master's and my PhD here at the University of Guelph uh, in the history department. Uh, my research focused on the history of bovine tuberculosis management in Canada and the United States. I did a transnational study of Ontario and the state of New York and the collaborative relationship that veterinarians and uh, the government had in combating that disease. Um what interested me in that disease was the how, how difficult it was to, right. to manage a disease that didn't necessarily show itself in a very dramatic way. It was kind of a slow realization that there was this huge problem, uh, not only to animal health, but to human health as right. well. And so that's what interested me in, in doing that. And while I was working on my PhD, uh, preparations had started for the OVC's 150th anniversary. And so one summer when I wasn't traveling to do research... Mm-hmm. Um, a small job opportunity uh, came up to do some background research uh, for some various projects that, that the dean at the time, Elizabeth Stone, had uh, for the 150, and I just haven't left. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, that's a good thing. <laughs> yeah.
0: so uh, after, after I finished my PhD, I was a postdoc with her, and then oh. uh, I took over full-time uh, duties for the collection in 2016, so okay. the, the Barker Museum is quite big. Uh, we have over 12,000 artifacts in the collection. Wow. It's, it's arguably the largest collection in North America and one of the only actively curated ones of the world. And, and I also wear a number of other hats on campus. I manage collections for other colleges, mm-hmm. uh, more notably the, uh, the McDonald Institute's collection okay. uh, over in the College of Social and Applied Human Sciences. I occasionally teach in the history department. I work in special events,
1: assist with our wow. development
0: team. Uh, do a bunch of things uh, here on campus. It's a, it's a fun job with a lot of different parts.
1: It, it sounds like it. And then, and then this year is a very special year, as I understand, because the Ontario Veterinary College has been 100 years on campus. It, yeah, it so tell us more about that.
0: It has. So 1922 uh, was the year that OVC moved here to Guelph, um, and it's also our 160th anniversary as an wow. institution this year. Uh, OVC is the oldest veterinary college in Canada and the United States, Uh, Something to be proud of. In the States. Yep. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, yes. Um, I think the oldest college in the United States is Iowa State's Veterinary School. Okay. Uh, And it was founded, I believe, in the late 1860s or early 1880s. Okay. Or, sorry, 1870s. Um, So OVC was founded in Toronto, downtown Toronto right I Uh, remember
1: hearing that because it was a part of U of T is that right it was eventually most veterinary
0: schools in the 19th century start off as privately owned colleges in urban areas in part because there just wasn't money to have such an expensive uh, operation as part of a school Um, and so and they were in urban areas largely because the That's where the largest number of clients were okay Uh, these were these were schools that were designed for urban workhorses uh, as well as uh, animals of you know sort of outlying areas Um, and by 1922 this object called the automobile had been invented right and so you start to see a lot of these urban privately owned veterinary colleges either fade away
1: okay
0: uh, entirely or they become federated with universities uh, they are taken over by the government and move to different areas. Not all of them, but, but OVC is certainly one of them. So the OVC moved to Guelph in 1922. And yes, that was precipitated by the, the decline in, in urban working horses. They didn't entirely disappear from cities. There are still horses delivering milk in the 1950s, for example. But there's certainly a noticeable decline in that client base uh, in urban areas. And so it made sense for the college to move here. Uh, to the home where OAC is, first of all, there was a tremendous amount of property. And there was also a real desire on the part of the government to foster greater ties research, uh, as well as support to the livestock industry in Ontario, which there was a real push in that period to strengthen it and make it a, a greater part of the Ontario and indeed the Canadian agricultural economy.
1: Right, and like you were saying, so the OAC, which is the Ontario uh, Agricultural College, was already here in Guelph, so it Mm -hmm. seemed like a very good fit.
0: Yeah, so the OAC has been here on Guelph's campus since 1874. Wow. Um, not all the original buildings uh, are here. Actually, I don't think any of them are from the from the original college, um, with the exception of the portico. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so when the OVC moved here in 1922, there were really only two buildings. Really, uh, that were here: the main administrative building on the co- on the corner of College at Gordon, and uh, okay. where Pathobiology. Okay. is now there was a long gray barn that okay. served as the infirmary. And that's it. That's all wow. that was on this
1: side of the road. And just land
0: and land and land. It just land for, for miles. And so it's amazing when you kind of look at those historical photographs and you see what the college started out as here as to what it is today and how, the, sure. how the OVC has grown in terms of its teaching and its, its services. Um, it's, it's really quite a, an astounding growth and something to be really proud of.
1: Uh, I can imagine in, um, in a previous podcast, I remember we were talking to uh, Peter Conlon about, um, where we are located currently and where you and I are sitting right now is on the corner of Smith Lane and McGillivray. Yep. Yeah. So, um, so named after some of our, our I guess, uh, forefather founders. Is yes. that what you- <laughs> Yes.
0: Yeah, so Andrew Smith was the founder of the OVC. He was a Scottish trained veterinarian mm-hmm. at, uh, he went to the, uh, the Royal Dick, School okay. of Veterinary Medicine in Edinburgh. Actually, most uh, founding veterinary college individuals were Scottish oh, okay. uh, in this country. So uh, Smith, uh, Duncan McEachran, who was the first faculty member that Andrew Smith hired, he was a classmate of his. And he eventually, actually very soon after he came to the college, broke away from Smith and founded what has become the Montreal Veterinary College. Oh, wow. And you know, there are others in the States as well. James Law, who, who founded uh, the veterinary college at Cornell, trained at Edinburgh. So there's a, a very rich Scottish heritage of veterinary medicine and veterinary training here in here in North America. Interesting. And then Charles McGilvery, he was the third principal of the college. Uh, he took over in 1918 wow. and was quite instrumental in moving the college here to Guelph, really making the case to uh, some skeptics about Moving the college here to Guelph. because there were there were some who thought if they moved the college here that the college would dry up that nobody would want nobody to come here, come. and it there were some lean years at the beginning mm-hmm. uh, the graduating classes were were small, but over time uh, it has grown into what we see today. Um, he was also not a, only instrumental in uh, the education standards for for veterinarians but also in extension work and research. Uh, two hallmarks of what we do here at the OVC were very much a uh, uh, a drive of his and his successor uh, Andrew McNabb who, who took over from him in uh,
1: 1945. Uh, Charles McGilvery was, was principal for a very long time. Wow and, and so tell me these original classes like how many, how many students would there be in the class and how long was the program?
0: So in, in, it really varies. Uh, mm-hmm. over the years. And that's one of the interesting things about the 100th anniversary mm-hmm. uh, here in 1922, because the, the, the graduating class of 1922 is a really quite a significant one. Um, in the 19th century, with these sort of private colleges, the programs are often very short. Okay. Um, you read a book, <laughs> <laughs> uh, wrote Ed exam well, uh, that would be dreamy <laughs> <laughs> and um, you know again there were a number of private colleges that existed at this time even mm-hmm. some really some some folks even some of his own graduates really really criticized Andrew Smith for what they considered a very easy okay veterinary program and this is one of the reasons why Duncan McEacherin broke with him and went to Montreal is because oh, he felt that there should be more rigorous standards um I think that there is some fair criticism of that. But I also think that Andrew Smith and others recognized that in 1862, when he founded the college, Mm Canada is a very young nation at that time. Sure. And having a short course that was very practical served uh, the public better than a much longer program. But the the program went from, you know, what they called sessions. So Mm -hmm. a session was usually, you know, about October to March. So let's call it an academic year uh and then students were were expected to go out and do um clinical work during during the summer months uh the the program lengthened to three years at one point but by the late 1910s that's when we start to see the sort of transformation of the veterinary program that student veterinarians are probably more familiar with today okay and that comes out of a number of things that that happen in canada in the united states Um, notably work within the AVMA, the okay. American Veterinary Medical Association. Canadians have been part of the AVMA since its founding in the 1860s. There's always been a very, very close collaborative um, relationship between Canadian and American veterinarians in the AVMA to the point where we still, we still are, we are yeah. still accredited by the AVMA. And that accreditation yeah. really starts, that push for accreditation starts in the 1910s into the oh, early wow. 1920s. That's when that really begins it... There's a a number of factors that kind of um, Mm -hmm. come into it, and um, there are scholars that look at this. Um, One of the the big um, influences on it was something called the Flexner Report. The Flexner Report. Abraham Mm -hmm. Flexner came out with this report in 1910, and he, I forget what his position was, but uh, he wasn't a veterinarian or a medical uh, authority whatsoever, Mm -hmm. but um, he went and reviewed medical schools in the United States and veterinary schools. There's a handful of veterinary schools that are part of the Flexner report. And what he did is he looked at admission standards. He looked at facilities. He Hmm. looked at the length of the program and what uh, um, students were being taught, uh, what kind of examinations they were given. And he found that there was a great deal of variation and felt that there should be standardization. And so Medical education particularly looks very different after him. This is when you start to see, the, you know, the four-year programs. Right. The, you know, the first two to three years of medical education uh, being very lecture and classroom and laboratory based with then clinical um, learning at the end of it. And you start to see that in veterinary medicine, too. And all of this happens right around the time that our class of 1922 starts.
1: Oh, interesting. Starts
0: their program. And so... This is when this is also a period when the professionalization of veterinary medicine, what we call the professionalization of veterinary medicine, really comes into its own. By the end of the 1920s, those private colleges, those private for-profit colleges, right. and not all of them were terrible mm-hmm. um, I actually went through one of, I have a few examples of these correspondence veterinary schools from the 19th century in the collection and I, I sat down with a vet once and I flipped through one of the books that you had to read mm-hmm. and I said, was this bad advice? Yeah. And the answer was not all of it was bad. <laughs> and for a farmer in rural sure. Canada who didn't necessarily have
1: mm-hmm. a
0: veterinarian down Access. the road. Sure. You know, being able to do basic work on their own and do it properly mm-hmm. was really, really important. And I think so there's there's a lot of arguments you can make against these goals. But I think in, in some cases it did serve a need. Sure. Because um, what else
1: know. did you no Internet at that time? No. Absolutely. You know what did you <laughs> yeah. do if
0: your horse had colic or, yeah. or had lameness? And there's no one around. And there's no one around. And and there was you know, in some cases, in some of these these correspondence uh, schools, they were given reasonably good advice about what to do. Sure. Um, and so in in that case, it, it served a need. But by the time our class of 1922 uh, graduates, veterinary medicine is really looking like w- the way we see it now. Okay. Um, and so that's our, our, that's a really, really important period uh, in the um, in the profession. and it's kind of reflected in who graduates okay. that year. One of the the issues I have working with these these graduating years every year I look at who graduated 50 mm-hmm. 100, and 150 years ago. And sometimes I know what happened to some of these folks mm-hmm. And often I don't. Okay. You know, their names and faces on a class composite, or their names on a list, and I know where their hometown is, but I don't know anything that happened to them.
1: Mm-hmm. I
0: do if they had careers of of note, if they went and worked in the government, if they went into research, if sure. they became faculty somewhere. Um, for the class of 1922, I don't really know a whole lot about uh, mm-hmm. these men. All of them are men. Okay. Um, there's there's 18 graduates that year. Wow. Um, two were from Trinidad. Okay. So there's a, a long history of the OVC. Um, accepting students from the Commonwealth. We started doing right. that in the, in the late 19th century. That was an expectation of Commonwealth schools that you would accept students from around the Commonwealth. And so you do see them uh, sort of peppering the, uh, the, the graduation roles of the OVC. And a lot of them um, would go back and uh, work, in, work as veterinarians. Um, certain parts of, of the Caribbean were very important in the cattle industry. Okay. And so having well-trained veterinarians uh, was really, really important. Um, I often wondered when I was looking at, um, those two graduates, what was their experience like? Yeah, absolutely. As students here in the 19, late 1910s, early 1920s. Mm -hmm. And, um, the answer is, I don't know. Yeah. You know, I don't know if they had a, a pleasant or an unpleasant experience. It's something that I talked about with VIBE actually, while I was preparing the exhibit that's over in the library right now. Excellent. Um, there's an exhibit on the second floor of the library that's running until December 2022, uh, called a century on campus, uh, the OVC in Guelph. And in, in that I, I spoke with vibe, uh, in part because issues of diversity and equity are, are important to people. And so Mm -hmm. we had a a discussion and they are featured uh, in the exhibit. And one of the things that I talked about with them was, you know, what was the experience of BIPOC students historically? We have quite a lot mm-hmm. in the history of the college. And unfortunately, I don't really know what their experience right. was like. They didn't leave diaries or, or letters of what their experience was like. And so it's, it's something I, I think about when I look at those photographs. Um, one of the other things, and this goes back to um, the sort of the professionalization of veterinary medicine, I look at, um, there are four graduates who are from defunct U.S. schools. Okay. <laughs> so those colleges that closed, oh. those private colleges that started to close
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, throughout the early 20th century as veterinary medicine started to be more aligned with universities mm-hmm. and and state control. Uh, four of those uh, gentlemen wound up coming to the OVC. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and actually I looked, I'm like, well, was that kind of a, was that an anomaly, or was that did that happen a lot? And actually, sure. it happened quite a lot. Interesting. There, there are a lot of um, student veterinarians who began school or even completed school at one of these one of these American colleges. And again, not all of them were bad. Some of them were were actually quite mm-hmm. reputable. Um, but they, you know, the school closed before they finished yeah. their program. And they wanted to finish, and they wanted to finish, and so they uh, they came here. I'm not entirely sure what the draw was. I don't know if they. Mm. Because enrollment was low, if they were offering a cut rate, I think sure. I think part of it was the reputation of the OVC in the United States. We have a lot of Americans that come to this college, sure, and still, still, and, to and still day. do, yeah, um, throughout the 19th century. And so, I think that there is there was a knowledge, of course,
1: that absolutely. within the profession that the OVC was was a reputable college to to attend. Yeah, interestingly, I practiced in the um, Cayman Islands for 10 years, and um, the veterinarian there, actually, um, Dr. Mm -hmm. Alfred Benjamin, uh, was a graduate from OVC, and it was interesting talking to him uh, because, uh, as you alluded to, um, quite a few Caribbean students, they just had this draw uh, towards OVC, which I always thought was interesting because from a a physical perspective, it would be closer to go somewhere in the States, uh, but they did end up in Canada. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, and then uh, our very own Dr. Omar Khan is actually from Trinidad Solves to see if he can maybe do some some sleuth work in uh, Trinidad and find out, uh, you know, where those two gentlemen in 1922 graduates. Uh, yeah, what happened, <laughs> what that, happened to them? <laughs> I often wonder what happened to some of these folks. Sure, you know, I have sure. no idea what was their experience like.
0: Yeah, they're they're often just names and faces. And I, I would have, I would love to know what happened. Yep. Yeah. To, to some of these folks, you know, did sure. they did they go back and have careers? Did they pursue mm-hmm. something else? Um, mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm very curious to know what happened to some of these people.
1: Now, now tell me along those lines. Um, you alluded to the fact that the many men in the program. Uh, when do we see the first woman uh, in the program? Because certainly at this point, we've gone from all men uh, to a, a large percentage of females in the program.
0: Yeah. So the first woman to graduate from the OVC, her name was Elizabeth Carpenter. She she graduated in 1928. Uh, she was from Detroit, okay. and the daughter of a graduate, I forget when her father graduated, sometime in the 1890s, but he owned one of the very first small animal practices in, in the city of Detroit, and she actually wound up founding her own small animal practice. We find her in California towards wow. uh, the end. She owns a, a, a cat hospital. No kidding. In California, yeah. And in,
1: in, in, uh, what year would that be, approximately?
0: Uh, I think that was or... I think that was probably the
1: 1930s. Wow, that's amazing when you think about that because even when you look at veterinary medicine now, we're starting to get more cat clinics and specialized mm-hmm. um, species clinics, species-only clinics, and so wow. So back then, that's that's pretty forethinking, so forward thinking.
0: Absolutely. Um, I you know I think looking at the you know the sort of the 19th and early 20th century, small animal medicine doesn't really become or companion animal mm-hmm. medicine doesn't really become something that is widely taught. At least here. And this is one of the things that happens when the college moves here. Mm-hmm. Uh, small animal, companion animal medicine, sorry, becomes uh, something that is part of the curriculum, part of uh, clinical work uh, and service to the community in the late 1920s. And because previous to that, um, mostly large or only large? Um, pretty say? well pretty or well, only large. Um, so uh, horses and, and mm-hmm. cattle. There is the odd dog. That okay. comes in. Um, there's small animal, or companion animal medicine, particularly it's dogs that are, that kind of medicine is being taught. It was a kind of special topics lectures that were given every once in a while. I don't know what, they lo- what that looked like, but dogs were working animals as well. Okay. And so, and companion animals. I think that there's a, or I often find that there's um, this idea that, You know, there wasn't any companion animal medicine that happened prior to it being instituted as a specialty. And that's not the case at all. One of the wonderful sets of records that we have in the museum is the clinical records from the Montreal Veterinary College. I'm working with them right now on a project, and they stretch from about 1872 to about the late 1930s. And one of the things that I find in the 19th century is a lot more companion animals than I thought I would interesting um and these are now this is Montreal's elite English population Mm -hmm. and I've actually been able to match some animals to photographs at the McCord Museum which is which is a lot of fun that's I'm, I'm pretty sure that you know the the photo I'm looking at is, is, the is the dog that they are describing <laughs> in this. Now, I don't often know what they're doing with this, mm-hmm. the, the dog or the cat for that matter. Okay. Um, it just says, visit, 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 visit. These are ledger books. They were, they mm-hmm. were meant to keep uh, financial records for the most part. But uh, it surprises me that companion animal medicine makes up much more of the daily life of our practice than I thought it would. Um, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, it, it it matches, you know, there is literature in this period that specializes in the health of, of dogs and cats. And so it's, it's, it's nice to see that it was actually practiced in a big way. Um, At, at various at various uh, practices. Um, now, unfortunately, we don't have the OVC's records from that period. There was a fire at the vet college in the eighteen nineties, I believe, and a lot of records were lost. Oh wow! And so, and when the college moved here from from Toronto, you know, whatever didn't come to, to Guelph was probably thrown out. Right. And unfortunately, we have lost our our sort of clinical history. Okay. Um, but you know, for for uh, at least for Montreal, we are able to say. You know, this is pretty well what veterinary medicine looks like mm-hmm. um, of what the teaching hospital
1: especially looked like at, at a veterinary college in Canada in this period. So, so tell me, when do we see um, a veterinarian graduating with what we call a DVM, which is a doctor of veterinary medicine? So, you know, way back when they were private colleges, um, you know, in, in Toronto, um, would would these gentlemen graduate with a DVM um, or is it not until...
0: Well, the private colleges, there was a whole different smattering of names that they gave <laughs> uh, their graduates. You know, some were called veterinary surgeons, some, okay. were, some were called veterinarians, some were called doctor of veterinary medicine by the the... Class of 1922, for example, they were granted a BVSE, a Bachelor of Veterinary Science. And then they could go on and do a Doctor of Veterinary Medicine. And that was a research degree, oh, uh, even okay. at that point. And so that's where I see those sorts of the titles that we are more familiar with uh, come out. But before then, uh, these the private colleges, they could really say whatever they, they wanted. wanted. to, Yeah,
1: because <laughs> yeah, I guess they weren't accredited. They could do whatever no, they No,
0: right. no. And it's, it's not until... The 1930s with the introduction of the Veterinary Practice Act that we see in Ontario, at least. And there is a kind of a grandfathering in of, of those who had sort of practiced informally. And I have some collections of informal practitioners, actually some that were quite local okay. to here at the college. Um they were kind of grandfathered into the profession, but it's it's in the, the early 1930s that you start to see, you know, a very clear line of who can call themselves a veterinarian, that you had to be a graduate of an accredited veterinary school and you had to have completed the program satisfactorily in order to be called
1: a veterinarian. Okay. Um, and then the so you said about um, eighteen to twenty people in sort of the 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 nineteen twenty two class and, and on. Uh, when do we see veterinary medicine uh, as you suggested uh, branching more specifically into small animal, large animal, exotics, or how does that come about? Small animal medicine or companion animal medicine. I'm sorry, yeah. I always mix them oh, up. Oh, I call that too. Yeah. Um,
0: that tends to grow into the the what we know it as today. Really in the post-World War II period. Okay. Uh, the post-World War II period is when people started owning pets in okay. the way that is more familiar to us now. And so you see um, people specializing more in companion animal medicine. Um, you also start to see companies, you know, pet food companies and things they had existed before them, but you start to see them more in a big way uh, in that post-World War II period.
1: Um, and and in terms of
0: exotics, I'm not entirely sure. Okay. It just sort of
1: happened. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I guess as people potentially have, you know, pet uh, companion exotics, but then also, um, you know, you can see even in Ontario, um, some small zoos and that type of thing. So, Well,
0: it's something interesting that I I expected as I've gone through these Montreal records, I've expected to see more exotic animals because it Mm. was a popular thing to do in the 19th century that you owned a monkey or, or something like that. And I'm surprised that I
1: don't see right. I that if, in I, the records. I wonder if uh, some of the human practitioners were uh, forced. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> that's funny so with the uh, the the um museum at the moment the Barker Museum and you've got the special collection uh at the library for a century on campus tell me about some of the unusual things or exciting things or um you know what what would be I think you said there's some some interesting equipment and tools that were used by veterinarians so what are some of your favorites or, or interesting pictures or whatnot that oh you gosh
0: seen? uh so our our collection is quite large okay. as I said um and uh the The founder of the collection, who is uh, Dr. Cliff Barker, uh, he was a faculty member for a long time here at the veterinary school. Um, in what we now call clinical studies, he was a theriogenologist mm-hmm. and uh, was very interested in the history of the profession. He felt very strongly about preserving its history and felt that it really mattered that we do that as the oldest college in, in Canada, the United States. And thank goodness he did, yeah, uh, because throughout his career and well into his retirement, he amassed the original. Uh, collection he was able to get a grant and have a staff and he catalogued it and thank goodness he did because wow. when I started clearing out the vaults um, to kind of get a sense <laughs> of what we had, I found some things that were uh, a little questionable and I'm glad that there were records of you know, is this going to hurt me? <laughs> that kind of thing Medical collections uh, within the the world of museums are are kind of their own creature. I can imagine uh, they, they require, you know, certain kind of handling and a, a certain kind of care and attention sure. um, that I've had to learn. <laughs> when I, when I started working with this, I, I, with the collection, I, I wasn't a curator. okay I was just asked, do you want to work with the collection? And I'm like, well, that sounds sure. fun. Why not? Mm-hmm. Uh, but thankfully I've been able to, uh, you know, draw on local museums and, and talk to those, talk to those folks who have been in the trenches for a long time and kind of get some advice about, you know, how do you properly handle things? How do you properly catalog and mm-hmm. how do you, make this stuff interesting, uh, to people and, and kind of make a case for why it matters that we have this, right. this huge collection. Um, so I would say that, that the collection, now that I've seen the collection for as you know, the forest for the trees for, for uh, I would say that, that I would, that our collection kind of has four big areas okay. that it touches on, um, veterinary education, we have a, a fantastic collection of how veterinary, student veterinarians have learned veterinary medicine here at the OVC for the last 160 years now. Wow! Um, so that's uh, teaching AIDS. Okay. Um, I have class notes. Oh, it's wow, it's cool. interesting to know what students were taught. It's also very interesting to see what they wrote down. <laughs> <laughs> you wouldn't want to see my notebooks. <laughs> I have I have collections of notebooks from every iteration of the de- of the veterinary curriculum, and oh, wow. I'm and I'm really glad that I do because you see changes in how students were taught uh, over the years based on the notes that they wrote down. Sure. Um, we also have uh, a wonderful set of collections that reflect veterinary practice. So what happens when you leave college? Right. And again, we don't always know what happened to some of these folks, but at least mm-hmm. uh, for some of them, you know, whatever was left behind when they retired or you know somebody passed away you know it was put in a box Um, Mm -hmm. especially for for rural veterinarians we often really don't know what happened with them Mm -hmm. but i can tell from some of the instruments in the bags and the boxes i'm like all right this is probably what they would have done um the sort of routine uh preventative medicine as well as some some forms of uh more intensive intervention uh, we also have a wonderful collection related to veterinary research okay. uh, here at the college, um, as well as uh, a fantastic amount of uh, material related to what I would deem veterinary service, so the service of veterinarians in the state. And the most prominent of that is our World War I collection. Okay. So the Canadian Army Veterinary Corps. Oh, wow. Uh, we have arguably the largest collection of, of Canadian Army Veterinary Corps material in Canada. Uh, it was a real interest of Cliff Barker's. Cool. Um, and we have, you know, foot chests that would have been used on the Western Front. Wow. Uh, at field hospitals, we have two uniforms, we have photographs, and uh, Cliff Barker's son, Dr. Ian Barker, who is. Right. Uh, he taught me. Yeah, uh, he did. Who's <laughs> <laughs> an, an emeritus uh, here, right. here at the college. Right. He's uh, been instrumental over the years because he's the one who knows the collection as well as his father did. And wow. so when I find something. A little unusual. alarming <laughs> or i don't know what something is i'm, I'm not a trained veterinarian I've, I've 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 i'm often asked if i'm a veterinarian and sure I'm like no i'm not i'd be a fairly competent 19th century veterinarian in part because i've had to learn you know
1: what all these what all of things these things are, are especially what yeah.
0: medications are because okay. things in pharmacology have changed so much in the right. last 100 and 150 years that, you know, I pull something out of a a bag, I'm like, uh, what is this? this? (laughs) And is it okay that I'm touching it? Yes, exactly. (laughs) Or inhaling it. (laughs) Exactly. Some things can can get a very
1: interesting odor as they age. sure. (laughs) (laughs) Interesting. And then you've got some, you were saying before about some uh, composites that you've got class composites and pictures and photos. of. We have a wonderful collection of
0: photographs. Um, Some are over in Archival and Special Collections in the library, and it's wonderful that we partner with them. Uh, In many ways, they have an excellent collection of of campus heritage uh, over in the library. Uh, We have quite a large collection here, though, as well. Uh, And so we have, um, I'm trying to create a complete set of our class composites. So our class graduation photos. So the oldest one that we have in the collection is from 1885. And, and so the 1880s, from what I can gather from uh, colleagues of mine who work in, in the history of photography, the 1880s, that kind of period is about when those class pictures start to be created as sort of commemorative pieces that students were either bought or were given when they Mm -hmm. graduated from school. Um, I think 1885 roughly is wow. probably where we start. If there's an older one out there, I'd love to see it. Um, but on our uh, the museum's website, which is uh I have a list of ones we're missing. Oh boy, we need those. We do because okay. I'm, I'm hoping to create a, a new physical display here in the college of uh, the last century. That would be so great. Of, of our composites and, and I'm missing certain decades. Decades, I'm, okay. I'm I'm missing a lot from the 1950s and the 60s, okay. And I'm missing a handful from the 1970s, as, as well as some older ones. So, right, uh, if you graduated in those years or know someone who did, um, please let us know,
1: please let us know. It would be great to have a full collection of that. I mean, I know um, myself, like bringing my kids over to the uh, the main building, uh, particularly during uh, college royal. They've got all the composites in the hallway, uh, and just showing them my photo and seeing the 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 the, the composite upon opposite of all the years and, and feeling that you're a part of this great institution I think it's so great so it would be great to have a copy of all those absolutely those pictures yeah now do you have any other uh, favorite photos in your collection that I you like to tell us about
0: <laughs> I do yeah probably one of my favorite photos it's a photo from I believe it's about 1890 1895 and it's of the dissection laboratory
1: oh wow Good times
0: at, <laughs> uh, at the OVC on Temperance Street. Uh, so, oh the the first OVC buildings on Temperance Street were pretty. They were constructed at Andrew Smith's own expense. Again, this was mm. his college, mm-hmm. uh, and the the uh, the anatomy lab, if you wanted to call it that, uh, was pretty simple let's say um now yeah pretty basic (laughs) uh they they tended they're all bundled up in the pictures that i have of them so i i suspect they did their dissections for for anatomical learning uh during the winter okay um probably due to the smell Smell? okay Um, the (laughs) ventilation uh, mechanical ventilation didn't really happen until the college moved to its second home in toronto so the ovc was on temperance street until 1914 when they moved to a brand new very state of the art building on university avenue okay. and they were only there for a very short time obviously before the college moved here to Guelph okay uh so it's it's an interesting photo set of photos to look at but and it's it's a photograph of Andrew Smith i can see him in mm-hmm. the photo and a number of his students and They're all wearing three-piece suits and top hats.
1: Right, because that's what I wore in my dissection lab. I'm sure it was. (laughs) And they
0: are standing proudly with their instruments behind a fully dissected horse. Wow. And it looks kind of odd. odd. (laughs) But there's an important message in that photograph. And again, this is the 1890s. This is when debates about professionalization really start to ramp up. You can see it in, in resources like the Farm Press mm-hmm. about who should be a, a veterinarian. Veterarian. And one of the ways that veterinarians showed their professionalization was in photographs like that, hmm. that they were experts on the anatomy of these animals. Okay. And so while... They're a little bit alarming. <laughs> they send a very, very powerful historical message that this is what they're serious professional veterinary medicine looks like. It's expertise. Interesting. It's um, long hours spent studying and being a real authority on animal yeah, health, yes. not just in terms of treating the live
1: animal, but knowing the you know every part of inside an animal, and out. inside and out. Absolutely. Well, and then so tell me uh, also about equipment, because I'm sure I've seen some unusual equipment um, used for various, you know, surgical procedures or procedures in general. Is there any favorite pieces or unusual pieces of equipment that are or alarming pieces?
0: Of equipment? <laughs> there, there's some research mm-hmm. and development equipment. I can tell that was Cliff Barker's from Therogenology. I won't okay. talk about those things. <laughs> some some very interesting stuff. Um, there's some interesting surgical we've got quite a lot of surgical equipment in the collection that i'm i'm quite happy to see mm-hmm. um we have a what i call an acute abundance of certain things okay um so you know when i get calls and i often do mm-hmm. uh from folks who are cleaning out houses or yeah. cleaning out barns i've nearly fallen through the floor of a few barns in my time <laughs> as the curator really it makes your job interesting i can say that, um, yeah. you know i i i don't need any more dental tools for example no more dental tools good to know um, or uh you know firing pins or you know instruments used to you know care for hooves and things but you know having those abundances says a lot about
1: what was used about what was used and Mm -hmm.
0: you know a lot of farmers did their own you know float floated their own horse's teeth uh, and um, did some basic work on on their own animals and so seeing those abundances you know tells me a lot about the kind of care that was provided to horses Uh, particularly horses, uh, on different uh, farms.
1: For sure. Um, Now tell me, so with the, um, getting back to the female um, um, uh, applicants or um, students, um, so when do we see that transition? So we see because we were mostly male until... So uh, women start to outnumber men in in the
0: student veterinarian population, I believe, right about the early 1980s. Mm Mm-hmm. And there's sort of been a, a kind of s- gradual increase in the number of women, um, starting, I would say, probably in the 1940s. Oh, there's wow. there's mm-hmm. only a few women that graduate after. Um, Elizabeth Barry Carpenter did in 1928. The next one, her name was Geraldine Fritz. She graduated in 1941, I believe.
1: Oh well quite a gap. Yeah, quite
0: mm-hmm. a gap. And uh, she actually wrote a letter that's in uh, the the archive in archival and special collections in the University of Guelph Library, and she talked about what it was like to be a female student here. And actually, she had quite a positive experience. Um, and then the next, uh, person to graduate, I'm sorry, Geraldine Fritz was 1938, 1941 was Jean Romney, who was the first Canadian woman to graduate. Oh, and so there's, there's a gradual increase. Um, interestingly, a a piece that I got from, I got for the collection, uh, from the class of 1968, that was a really important year. That was Ian Barker's graduating year. Mm -hmm. And the year he started, which was 1963, they were part of the five-year veterinary program. Right. Okay. Um, the year that they started, there had been kind of a soft acceptance level of five women into the program. And those women, from what they told me during their reunion, uh, their incoming averages had to be miles above, above. Wow. their male counterparts in order okay. to be accepted into the program. And for a bunch of different reasons, um, there was a petition sent to the Ministry of Agriculture about... How unfair um, acceptance standards were at the college, and on behalf uh, of the women, the yes. women wrote it. Okay. Yeah, um, something like that. Okay. it's it's kind of a gray area, but mm-hmm. the result of it was that more women started to be admitted to the college. And actually, during the 1968 uh, reunion year, their their 50th reunion year, um, a few years back, I received three of their jackets. Oh, that's awesome! And that was the first year that the OVC women students were able to have their own jacket. Oh wow. That's and amazing. and you know, for for our, yeah. our student veterinarians and, you know, yeah. mascots and their jackets, it's, it's a such big a deal right now. It's so. such an important part of the student experience here at, at the OVC. Sure. That this was the first time that women were allowed to to uh-huh. have that a part of that. And then what year was that? That's that would have
1: been the graduating class of 1968. Okay. And so, so tell me more about um, the mascots, because that is something, as you said, that I, I, I remember, I still have my jacket. I was uh, a 2000 dragon. Uh, I got the leather jacket with the big patch and it was so fantastic because as I understand, we're one of the only, maybe the only veterinary school that each class picks their own mascot, which has to be an animal that hasn't been used in quite some time. <laughs> um, and, uh, a color. So I believe when does that, that start?
0: I believe that starts in the 1970s. Oh,
1: okay. Wow. Um,
0: but we do have examples of it earlier. I have a class mascot. I I think it's a goat. I'm not entirely <laughs> sure. It's from the 1930s.
1: <laughs> but that that sort of yearly tradition, I believe, starts around the 1970s. Right. Yeah. And then the jackets, um, because that's something I remember everybody, you know, you get into the program, you want the uh, veterinary medicine jacket with the crest. And so d- is there any history about when that becomes? Uh,
0: OVC uh, OVC sweaters, not necessarily for particular classes, but oh, yeah. but college wear starts very, very early in the college is mm-hmm. history. Um, that sort of kind of collegiate wear is very common uh, in higher ed. And so I have photographs of students from the early 1900s wearing... Um, our, our signature OVC colors, which are black and white wow. um, uh, in, in those jacket or in those, uh, those, they're kind of cardigans. I've got quite a few of right, them in cardigans. the collection. Okay. I'm hoping to recreate one, one day. Oh, absolutely. I That'd think that would fantastic. be, I think that would be a lot of fun uh, that and um, hoping uh, to, cause the hundredth anniversary of the challenge cup will be yes coming up sooner than we think. Um, I'm hoping right.
1: to create one of the historic Hockey sweaters. Okay, so I will wear it for you because I still play hockey. So um, so that's a, a very huge part of veterinary school. And in fact, I remember when I was interviewed for veterinary school at the time, I was playing for the Ontario um, field hockey team. And they asked me in my interview, would I be willing to play ice hockey? And my answer was yes, of course. <laughs> So, so every veterinary class, whether you play hockey or not, you play hockey when you get into OVC, and that's still, still much, much the case. Uh, women, men doesn't matter. So everybody plays. So. Yeah. So the the original oh. Challenge Cup is on display over in the library.
0: No kidding. Yeah, it's a it's this tiny little shield. Uh, okay. That was crea- that was uh, presented to uh, the team by Charles McGilvery uh, when the oh, when wow. the tournament first started. So we were able to find that in the vault when we when we first cleaned it out. So this is the ice hockey annual tournament to see which which class is the best team. Yeah, and then eventually when the when that exhibit ends, there's a, a new display case uh, in the uh, new um, teaching building.
1: Oh, that's fantastic! Uh, that uh, that it will be on display in. Great. I, I hope to play again this year. So the last couple of years with COVID, obviously we haven't had it, so we got to get that up and running again.
0: Yeah. So we've got some fantastic uh, historical photographs of um, OVC's hockey teams. Uh, Dr. Brad Hanna, from uh, yeah. a faculty member in biomedical sciences, he's kind of our resident hockey historian, yes. and, and, and he, he still ha- plays. He still plays and. He has a fantastic. He's created a fantastic collection of historical photographs. We have students from the 1930s uh, with you know black and white, yep. uh, either say you know with a big V on on the sweater or Vets across the across the front, and we're. I'm really hoping. You know, for that hundredth anniversary, that we're going to be able
1: to kind of recreate one of those historic jerseys. For sure. Well, I have my uh, my my hockey jersey from two thousand. Oh, so wonderful! Be to give it to you, yeah, <laughs> if you want it, <laughs> For a big dragon on it. So <laughs> wonderful, excellent. So it's been so interesting talking about history, and I've learned so much. Uh, but tell me, why does history matter? Why should we care uh, about the Barker Museum? Why should we care about the history of the Ontario Veterinary College?
0: Well, I'm glad you asked that. Um, I think it's it's really important. Um, not just because it's my job, but uh, you know, I, I think that it, it matters that we preserve the heritage of veterinary medicine, not only for the college, but for the Canadian profession in general. Um, I would say from an academic perspective mm-hmm. that the, the last 10, 20 years has seen an explosion in scholarly interest in animals, uh, animal studies, animal history, uh, animal welfare, mm-hmm. and medicine's a really big part of that. And Retaining primary sources, whether it's documents, um, uh, various you know library resources, records of what we do here at the, at the college, as well as, as the physical parts of the practice of veterinary medicine. Veterinary medicine is a very material profession. There's mm-hmm. a lot of stuff you use. Yeah. And having a good record of that. Uh, here at the place where so much of it has happened, the for firsts sure. have happened, um, the influence that this college has had on veterinary practice, on service, on health intervention, not just for animals, but for humans as well. I think right. it's really, really critical that we have physical collections uh, is an important part of not only preserving our history and celebrating it, not and and not just with uh, within the profession, but certainly with the wider public. Um It's also a very important part of being um, within that area of scholarship, that we are a resource Mm -hmm. uh, for those uh, growing areas of scholarship and uh, doing outreach with other
1: parts of the university. I mean, I'm from the history department. Right. Right. Uh, Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, but I, I think it matters. I mean, even as a veterinarian, I graduated here at OVC in 2000, um, always, as a, even as a young child, I had my eyes on Guelph and wanted to come here. Um, and now I work here, and I feel so privileged to be a part of this bigger picture. Um, and as you mentioned before, there's only five uh, five now veterinary schools in uh, Canada, which is not very many. There's 35 in the States. So, you know, we really are a very small profession, um, and I think it's really important to know our heritage and, and to understand here as a veterinary educator um well, we're a part of because we, you know, we do influence the, the, the new veterinarians and it's important to have that, that, that passion and that allegiance for, um, for our school. I, I love OVC. I love being here and, uh, it really is so interesting. Um, uh, now tell me, um, if you wanted to, uh, donate either, um, objects or money, or you wanted to support, um, the Barker Museum, um, or the history of OVC, how can one do that? So we have a
0: website, uh, BarkerVeterinaryMuseum.ualberta.ca, and there's contact information there. I often ask people to get in touch with me before uh, donating a collection, just sure. to make sure that it's uh, it's safe for it to come to the college. <laughs> I've, I've I've had a few uh, I've had a few incidences where things have not been able to come to us for safety okay. reasons. Um, Uh, But, you know, just to make sure that things are appropriate for the collection to make sure that there's, you know, an important uh, story behind it, um, that we know where these things come from and and who they belong to. And sometimes, you know, I do have collections that come to us that aren't necessarily appropriate for us, but I always help uh, those individuals find the appropriate home for those for those collections.
1: That's, that's great. And I'm sure there's lots of lots of stuff out there and, and more to be in the future. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so thank you so much, Lisa, for coming today. I've learned so much. I can't wait um, to go over and see the exhibit. Um, and as I understand, if you would like to see the exhibit, do you call ahead of time? Do you make an appointment? Can you just show up at the McLaughlin Library? How does that work?
0: Right now with uh, with COVID, Um, the library asks that you make an appointment. So contact uh, Archival and Special Collections and make an appointment. Or or alternatively, contact me through the uh, museum website and I'd be happy
1: to meet you there and um, talk to you in person. Fantastic. And then as well, if any of our listeners um, would like to see or have questions or they have composites, because we know that you need some class composites or materials, you can also email vetsessions at hotmail.com. Um, so again, thank you so much, Lisa, for being here. I hope you'll come back with us and talk more about the history. It really is something that we should all be very, very proud of, uh, of this amazing, amazing institution. Um, for our listeners, again, please consider following and liking us on Instagram. You can find us at Vet Sessions. And again, email uh, any ideas or feedback to us at vetsessions@hotmail.com. at hotmail.com. Thanks, and we'll see you soon.